Good morning. If you have a copy of your Bible or a Bible in front of you, you can be turning to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin there in just a moment. A few housekeeping things, announcements. Uh, We are thankful that you are here and thankful for the time that we can spend together in worship. Our Sundays have still uh, been good here lately with good numbers, and we're thankful that you've chosen to be a part of our service here. Uh, And we're just thankful for the opportunity to be here. It's one of those mornings where nothing seems to be working right. Uh, Some of you are aware that our heirs had a little trouble over in the fellowship hall, so that's why those doors are open and the fans are running. Now the projectors aren't working, and you can reserve your judgment until after the sermon whether or not the preacher is working, Uh, but that's just the way things go sometimes. I do have a wise friend. Uh, His name is Jeff Strasner. Some of you know that wise man. And he said to me just a few moments ago before I came into the auditorium, Uh, that you know there was a time when we worshiped without both of those things, the air and the projectors working. And I would even take that a step further and say that not only did we used to do that, but there are probably many Christians today who have done that around the world where they don't have air conditioning and maybe don't have the means to have projectors and slides. So uh, it's a little inconvenient for us as uh, we are... uh, used to those kinds of things and then if you do have a bulletin in front of you I did bring mine up with the answers filled out so I can make sure and tell you uh, without forgetting when you're supposed to fill in some blanks if you'd like to follow along that way um, I can I can tell you with what to fill in and when but we are sometimes relying upon those and when they don't work it's inconvenient but we're thankful for the blessings that we do have uh, in connection I want to say thanks uh, publicly to all those who had a part in the funeral service uh, and feeding the family yesterday for the Reevely family. They were very thankful for that and want to pass that on. Certainly, uh, you've noticed the flowers up here at the front. There are a couple in the lobby, and there's even one on the tables in the fellowship hall for when we have lunch in a little while that they left here for us. Uh, the family did, and we're just thankful to all those who had a part in that and the way that we can express our love uh, for a family, and, and uh, they certainly want to pass that along. Uh, several of you asked this morning, but we are, or several of us will be heading to camp this week. Uh, For the camp that we're a part of, we go on Monday, so a lot of us will be leaving in the morning to head out there and coming home Friday afternoon, but we appreciate your prayers and look forward to uh, spending a week out there. The rumor has it the humidity may be down a little bit this week, so uh, maybe be thankful for that. If you want to be with us on Wednesday night here at the uh, the church building, Charles will be teaching the auditorium class. We will continue the discussion we've been having on our worship and our singing, and so you can be a part of that, and we'll miss you while we are away. You know, when we think about Acts chapter 2, it's a very great place uh, in the Bible, one of the greatest days in all of history. We're going to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus in a few moments, and that's certainly important, obviously, to our salvation. But then not far behind that is Acts chapter 2 there on the day of Pentecost. And you may have had discussions with people before who will say, well, you know, you Church of Christ people or you Church of Christers, if we just took Acts 2 out of the Bible, y'all wouldn't know what to talk about. And of course, that's not exactly true, but it is also true that this is a great day and a momentous occasion as Peter is going to preach this sermon. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning and focus on is that Peter was in the right place at the right time here on the day of Pentecost. Now, some of that was because he was given the instruction. Some of that is because of of what uh, he was going to be doing. But Peter was in the right place at the right time. And I think there are some things that we can take from what Peter presented here on that day, and we can apply them to our lives as we think about being fearless for God and sharing 
the gospel. This lesson was the second lesson that I had an opportunity to present a couple of weeks ago at the Dunlap VBS. We had one a few weeks ago over Luke and Luke's scripture, if you were here for that, and we talked about the accuracy of Luke's scripture. This was the second lesson that I presented there, and I wanted to share because as you're going to see, if you have an outline in front of you, this is another Sunday where we're going to connect the sermons a little bit. We'll get there in a minute, but we're going to talk about Joel and Joel's part in the sermon on Acts chapter 2. And this afternoon, if you'll be back with us about 1.30, we're going to focus on the book of Joel this afternoon. So the lessons will overlap just a little. But as we begin this morning, let's notice first of all, if you have your outline, you'll want to fill in that Peter was ready. Peter was ready is the first set of blanks there because as we enter Acts chapter 2, Peter was in the right place at the right time. He was in the right place and he was in the right position. Now we know that there is no geographical or physical place where God expects us to be necessarily. I mean, if this building wasn't here, the church at Saudi could meet somewhere else. This building could be in another place. So there's nothing holy in particular about this hill or, or this place where this building sits. There's no position we have to be in. But yet Peter was in the position of being ready so that he could present the gospel. We would notice that not only was he in the right place, by the way, these are not in your outline, but secondly, he, he had the right kind of power. Now, on the, on the screen, the slides that I had put forth, I had a question mark behind power. Because, you see, we need to have the right power, but we won't have the same measure of power that Peter had on that day. What are we talking about? Well, Peter had the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus had promised before he left that he would send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to come and to guide the apostles into all truth. You know, one of my other favorite quotes that I always share from my, my father-in-law is when he talks about these matters, I've always heard him say, the apostles did not get together the night before and say, what are we going to preach? They didn't get together the night before and say, okay, who's going to say what? And here's what we're going to say, and here's the outline. They didn't have to do that because they had the power, but the power was in the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them so that they would remember the things that Jesus had told them and the things that they were to share. Now, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the same miraculous way. We've been giving, given the Holy Spirit in a sense. The Holy Spirit has given us the Word of God so that we can use that. That is the power of God unto salvation. We have, need to have the power as well. Peter was ready because he was in the right place, the right position. He had the right power. But number three, we would even notice that there, he was around the right people, people who were going to be willing to listen. He had an audience. Today, our audience is every creature. We think about Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. And if we have a life that is supposed to be fearless, we're supposed to attract attention, the, attract the attention of people. Hopefully, people will look at us and they say, I see that you're different. I see that maybe you don't worry about things the same way like everyone else. I see that you're not, you, you just, you talk different, you dress different, you're different than everybody else. That attracts attention and puts us in a position to be ready to talk to people about God and about Christ. Peter had, the, he was in the right position, in the right place, he had the right power, and he had the right people around who were going to be, or going to allow him to preach the gospel. He was ready. But let's notice, secondly, if you have your outline there, that Peter used reasoning. 
Peter used reasoning. That's the second set of blanks there in your outline. Now, if you have your Bible open, we're not going to take the time, unfortunately, this morning to read Acts 2, 14 through 36. And even verse 40 kind of goes along with that. I wish we had the time because it's one of my favorite sermons and I love to try to read it and listen to it read in one sitting. Can I challenge you to maybe try that this afternoon or this evening to sit down and focus for a moment and just read Peter's sermon straight through because it it can be very encouraging. But what is it that we can see in Peter's life and especially in this moment in Peter, in Peter's sermon that can help us build a fearless faith? Well, he used reasoning. The first thing we notice is that he used reasoning, logic, and common sense. Well, how does that happen? Well, notice in verse 13, if you have your Bible, that as they are talking, as Peter and the apostles are talking, the people who have gathered there together have heard what they are saying each in their own language. We call it sometimes speaking in tongues. And in that speaking in tongues, there are people who hear someone speaking in another language that sounds like babbling or it sounds like I can't understand if you I took Spanish in high school but if I hear somebody who's fluent in Spanish speak it now just you know very quickly it doesn't make a lick of sense to me I cannot keep up I know it's not babbling but I also know that I can't understand it so because of this misunderstanding that's going on in a sense or because of the fact that they are all preaching in different languages we notice in verse number 13 that there's an accusation Before Peter can even begin preaching, he must address this accusation that he and the other apostles are drunk. Others mocking, in verse 13, said, they are full of new wine. Now, jokingly, again, I'm able to sit here and come up to the stage, the pulpit, and preach usually without any kind of trouble or any kind of introduction or anything going on, anybody accusing me of anything. But before Peter can even get to preaching, he's got to deal with this accusation. Someone's saying, or several are saying, these guys must be drunk, full of new wine. So how is Peter going to deal with this? Well, three things. It's the next three things that are in your outline there. We'll take them one at a time. First of all, he does, he talks about power. He deals with the nature of the power that is on display. So the first word is power. By implication, the organization and nature of the power on display that Peter was standing up with the 11 was evidence that they were not drunk. They're standing before a crowd and they are speaking. Commentator David Roper comments on on this kind of thing in this way. He says, we do not know exactly why these men made this statement that they must be full of new wine. Perhaps they wandered onto the scene and hearing languages they did not understand, they concluded that the apostles were speaking drunken nonsense. If they really thought the apostles were drunk, it was because they did not investigate sufficiently, and I love this last line, because drunkenness never made a linguist of anyone. I don't know if you've ever been around someone, maybe, who's had a little too much to drink, but they're usually not somebody who is speaking very clearly, who is standing up in front of a crowd and delivering a lesson. They're usually stumbling. They're sometimes slurring their speech, and you're not able to understand them. The nature of the power, our first word power on display, is proof that they weren't drunk, and that is what Peter kind of turns to first as he indirectly thinks about this idea that they're standing there and they're speaking clearly. Number two, time. 
The second word there is time, the time of day. Peter says in verse 15, as he does begin preaching, verse 15, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, based on the fact that the Jews started counting time, counting the hours of the day at dawn, which would be around 6 a.m., it would have been around 9 a.m., the third hour of the day, 6 to 9, when Peter made this statement. Now, unfortunately, as Americans, in our American society, we might hear this and think, well, you know, plenty of people probably around us, we may not interact with them, but plenty of people are drunk by 9 a.m., but to Peter's audience, this definitely would have made sense. This argument would have been solid. As Roper, David Roper, the commentator, again points out, he says, Orthodox Jews did not eat or drink prior to 9 a.m. on the Sabbath or a holy day. Most did not eat or drink before 10 a.m. on a festival day such as Pentecost and some not before noon. And so it was not unusual in those days for even those who were considered drunkards to become drunk in the daytime. That was not, it was not usual, excuse me, I may have said that wrong. It was not usual in those days for the drunkards to even be drunk during the daytime. And so this charge of drunkenness was so absurd that Peter meets it without any more proof. He doesn't need to say anything else except for it's the third hour of the day. And he's using common sense, logic, and reasoning as a part of his defense. The third thing that we would notice here in your outline is prophecy. So we've talked about power. We've talked about time. Let's talk about prophecy. And here is where we are going to talk about the prophecy of Joel for just a moment. Once that Peter has ruled out drunkenness, he moves on to the real explanation for why the, or what the people are witnessing. And the explanation of what they are witnessing is that this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that was recorded in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 32. Now, spoiler alert, that's what we're going to focus on this afternoon. Joel and Joel chapter 2. But Joel had made this prophecy hundreds of years earlier, and Peter's audience is getting a front row seat to its fulfillment. They are witnessing this prophecy being fulfilled. So once again, we're not going to take time to read all of it. If you're open still to Acts chapter 2 there, you might notice verses 17 through 21. If you're like my, me in my Bible, my Bible has the type offset just a little bit. It is prophecy or quotation from Joel chapter 2. So let's notice just a couple of things. First of all, Peter uses the phrase last days. And it's different from what Joel says. In Joel 2 in verse 28, Joel uses the term afterward. However, there's no contradiction here. There's no problem. Peter is simply interpreting Joel's prophecy in a more specific way. You see, the last days was understood by the Jews to refer to the period of time that would take place from the coming of the Messiah to the judgment, the final judgment. In other words, the fulfillment of this prophecy would not happen on one specific day, but during an extended period of time from the coming of the Messiah to the final judgment. So that explains why much of this prophecy was not fulfilled on that day alone. Notice some of the things that are there. I will pour out, verse 17, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Well, the phrase all flesh is certainly not a reference to every living thing on earth. 
dogs, horses, cows, anything like that. Instead, it refers to the receptive and obedient representatives from both the Jews and Gentiles, all flesh. That was the main distinction during that time, Jew or Gentile. And of course, here or previous to this, God's gifts had primarily been confined to his people, the Jews. The fulfillment of this part of Joel's prophecy began on the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit being poured out on the apostles and it continued in Acts chapter 10 with the family of Cornelius, a Gentile. There's a miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts, Acts 10 and now we have all flesh, both Jew and Gentile. And so Peter says from Joel, verse 17, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He says as well in verse 17, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now this is another, or this is an occasion where it seems not to have happened on the day of Pentecost, as Luke records it for us. Now it did certainly happen in the last days, as recorded in the book of Acts. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that the gift of prophecy was clearly present in the early church. And not only that, in Acts chapter 21, Acts 21 and verse 9, we see that Philip had daughters who prophesied. He had four daughters who prophesied. So your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, fulfilled during the last days. Your young men shall see visions. Verse 17 again. We see evidence of this in the early church in several places. Ananias in Acts 9 has a vision, right? Paul in Acts 9 has a vision. Peter and Cornelius in Acts 10 both have visions. Those things, we see evidence of those things being fulfilled. Your old men shall dream dreams. Although we don't have any specific reference to dreams in the New Testament, we know that they must have occurred at some point during the last days. It's possible that some of the visions that we just mentioned occurred at night. And perhaps they come in the form of dreams. There are a lot of other things that are mentioned here, including in verse number 21, Again, for the sake of time, we're going to move through some. But in verse 21, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For anyone who wants to avoid the judgment of God on that last great day, for anyone who wants to obtain salvation, they simply need to call on the name of the Lord. This is a phrase the Jews would have been familiar with. They would have heard it in Joel's text, Joel chapter 2, and now they're hearing it again. They would have been familiar with that. But we also understand that to call on the name of the Lord is not simply to call to say that, right? We have people all the time who say God or Jesus, and they do so not in a nice manner, not in praising him. So it's not just saying the name of the Lord. But when, they, when Peter tells them that they need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, they're going to ask what they need to do, and Peter is going to tell them what is involved in calling on the name of the Lord. But you see here, Peter is just getting started. He is not only going to answer the question that they wanted him to answer. You go back to verse 12. Back in verse 12, they have a question as they witness these things. Whatever could this mean? He's going to answer that question, but he's also going to answer the question that they needed him to answer. And that is the question about Jesus. That brings us to the next part of our outline, the next part of what we can take from Peter's sermon, and that is revelation. Peter used revelation. Revelation. Peter turns the crowd's attention after giving the prophecy of Joel 
At this point in his sermon, he exposes, reveals, and generally brings forth several levels of evidence to support the fact that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He turns the crowd's attention to this Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. That's verse 22, if you're following along there. You see, as maybe the the type in your Bible becomes back to the main setting, Peter's going to continue on, and he's going to use three other things here. Actually, four. I left one out. I'll give to you at the end. The first one under Revelation is miracles. Miracles. The first thing that Peter uses as evidence is the miracles of Jesus. Verse 22. The first thing we notice in this statement is the word attested there in verse 22. It's also translated approved if you have a King James Bible in front of you and even maybe accredited. This is apologetics in its purest form as we talked about a few weeks ago. Peter does not appeal to emotion. He doesn't appeal to a feeling or opinion. Hey guys, what do you think today? What do you feel about this? That's not what he says. He appeals to something that had been proven that had been demonstrated to be true. The legitimacy of Jesus' miracles was not up for debate. In fact, we go back to Matthew chapter 14 and 15, and they had been witnessed by thousands of people. Some people would even count up and say, maybe 9,000 people, Matthew 14 and 15. Besides women and children, maybe 9,000 men had been witness to his miracles. And here's the thing. I don't know if you've ever considered this before. I, I think we know it, but we kind of forget. Probably a good number of those people standing there that day had witnessed his miracles. You see, they didn't just come up from out of nowhere. They weren't just born yesterday, as we sometimes say. Many of the people who were gathered there had probably watched him perform these miracles. So when Peter says... This man who is attested to you by miracles, they would have understood that. Even Jesus' enemies attributed his miracles, who attributed his miracles to the power of demons, could not deny that miracles happened. Sure, they said, oh, don't look over here. It's got to be the demons. But they knew that something had taken place. Now, if you're still there in verse 22, Peter makes mention of three things, miracles, wonders, and signs. It's an interesting way to look at what Jesus had done supernaturally. Again, Roper, the commentator David Roper, explains it, these way, explains it this way. The term miracles refers to what was done. The term wonder refers to maybe the effect the miracle had on people. The miracles are done and the people have wonder. And the term sign refers to the purpose of the miracle. This is then a sign that they would know something, in particular with Jesus, that they would understand who he was, where he had come from, that he was the Son of God. What was done, the effect, and the purpose. Miracles, wonders, and signs. So we've already talked about miracles for just a moment. The second word in your outline there under Revelation is crucifixion. Crucifixion. When Peter came to this part of his sermon, he may once again... Have un, he would have known that there were people in the audience who had been there just days ago. And can you imagine if Peter said, you, you have crucified him. Many of them had just been the people shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And they're standing there on the day of Pentecost. And Peter's got their attention. And he's going to come to this part. 
and realize that God's people on the whole had rejected Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. And so after revealing that Jesus was proven to be the Messiah through the miracles that he performed, Jesus, or excuse me, Peter takes a bit of an emotional turn here. In verse 23, he says, Him, this Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you, there's the finger pointing, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. We joke sometimes about the preacher stepping on toes. The preacher usually sometimes has something that he knows that we all are guilty of. You know, we all are guilty of things from time to time. Doesn't always have somebody that he wants to point out directly. But can you imagine Peter saying, you. Using his finger to point and say, you are guilty of this. The lawless hands that Peter is referring to is almost certainly a reference to the Roman soldiers who had physically, literally crucified Jesus. But Peter makes it clear that the Jews were ultimately responsible. We live in a world that largely accepts the crucifixion of Jesus, right? I mean, there, there are crosses all, all over the place. People's home, on buildings, different things. The world typically accepts the crucifixion of Jesus. But Peter's audience was very different. Peter's audience, to a great degree, believed that the Messiah was going to physically deliver them from their enemies and set up an earthly kingdom. In fact, as the law of Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 21, Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Jews had misinterpreted this passage, and likely due to this misconception, the cross of Christ would be to them a stumbling block. They could not understand that the Messiah had been crucified. They thought he was going to come riding on that horse, conquering everyone and reign supreme. And they could not get it through their minds that the anointed one of God was hung on a Roman cross. That was unthinkable to them. So Peter is going to point out the crucifixion of Jesus as a big part of this. And he's going to use that as part of his explanation. Peter, however, in verse there in verse 23, correctly attributes Jesus' crucifixion to what? To the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. He reminded the Jews this has always been part of God's plan. I know what you're thinking, what you wanted to happen, but it's always been a part of God's plan. Is it even possible? I, I told you about verse 40. You remember in Acts 2, we kind of get the inter interruption there. Peter tells them what to do. Verse 40 reminds us, with many other words. So we're realizing that we don't have all of Peter's sermon here at this point. And so that's okay. But is it possible that Peter went back to Old Testament scripture to remind them about Jesus' death? Is it possible that he went to Isaiah 53 and talked about how he was wounded for our transgressions? He was bruised for our iniquities. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Is it possible that he went to Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Is it possible that Peter reminded them of these prophecies about Jesus' crucifixion? Certainly could be the case. But Peter's sermon up until this point could have been labeled as the bad news, right? This is the stepping on of toes. Like, like preachers today, all he's done is tell them, you're wrong, you've done this, this is your fault. But he's about to get to the good part. 
You see, the third thing in your outline there is the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. The good news for the Jews at Pentecost and for all mankind is that it didn't stop with you are at fault. It carried over to the resurrection. I want to give you four things if you're making notes, if you like to make notes, about the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, it was observable. Observable. From chapter 2, verse 24, and part A. God raised him up, and his tomb was still empty. It was observable. The resurrected Jesus had been seen by hundreds of people at this point. Many of those same people who had witnessed Jesus be resurrected had seen him in those last 50 days, had, were probably also there on that day as well. People who had seen him. So it was observable, the resurrection of Jesus. Number two, it was inevitable. Inevitable. Verse 24, part B. Having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Death, obviously, and as a back to our first point, observably, death could not hold our Lord. But why? Why was it impossible for Jesus to stay dead physically? Number three, because it was historical. Observable, inevitable, historical. You see, Peter did not need scripture to prove the apostles were not drunk. But he would need it to prove that the re resurrection of the Messiah was always part of God's plan. If you have your Bibles open there, once again, you may see type offset. Verses 25 through 28. This time going back to the words of David from Psalm 16. Peter quotes David in Psalm 16 in which Peter prophesies of Jesus' death and resurrection taking on the voice of Christ. So Peter, excuse me, David, David is writing and he's taking on the voice of Christ. Now the Jews had likely heard this psalm hundreds of times, but Peter is about to reveal its true meaning. So in the fourth thing that we would notice, it's observable, inevitable, historical, and it was explainable. In verses 29 through 32, Peter gives the explanation. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is still with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Although Jesus did go to paradise, as we think about the, what he says here in verse 31, although Jesus did go to paradise after he died, he did not stay there. Unlike the body of David, which was decayed, Jesus was raised in newness of life. Now, I told you there were four things under the point of revelation. He used the miracles, the crucifixion, the resurrection. The one that's not in your outline, our last point is the ascension. The ascension and position of Jesus. Peter now lets the Jews know that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and that he is directly responsible for the power that they were witnessing right then and there. In fact, Peter quotes another prophecy from David. Psalm 110 in verse 1, and again, in my Bible it's offset, verses 34 and 35. 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Well, what does this mean? Well, once again, David Roper in his commentary points out that Peter's argument was the same one he had made before. David could not be speaking of his own ascension since he was still in his tomb. Therefore, the second Lord, you notice there from verse 34 and 35, the Lord said to my Lord, the second Lord mentioned must be the Messiah. David was speaking of the ascension and glorification of Jesus Christ. Jesus now sat on the throne of David or the throne of God, and he is now in a position of authority, and he will remain in that position of authority until the end of time when his enemies become his footstool. So Peter's now ready to, in our minds as we read it, begin to drive home this point. And so it is then in verse 36 where he makes that statement that all preachers long for, driving home that message. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, the one we've just been discussing, whom you crucified, pointing the finger again, both Lord and Christ. The simple carpenter from Nazareth. The one who came to them in such a humble, surprisingly humble way was now in the position of the highest authority. He was their Lord. He was the true Messiah. And he was their only hope of salvation. Can you imagine being in the audience on this historic day? Can you imagine being in the audience and not being cut to the heart as they were there in verse 37? Peter's sermon is one of the greatest sermons recorded there. And as we've talked about what they needed to know, let's notice a couple of things very quickly as we conclude. Based on Peter's sermon, what can we take from it? Number one, as we began, Peter was ready. We need to be ready. Peter would have never been ready to preach this sermon if he hadn't put himself in the position to do so. What about us? Are we ready? We talk about studying the Bible. Do you say, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good thing. I'll get around to it when I can. Do you ever know when somebody may ask you a question? And you're not ready to answer. Are you ready as Peter was ready? Number two, logic is our friend. Peter used logic. He used common sense. He used reasoning. When I say study your Bible and be ready, I don't mean that you have to be ready and sit down and have a two-hour debate with someone. Use logic. Use common sense. Peter wasn't the first to do that. Jesus had done it as well. He used common sense, asked them to consider things. And he would not be the last. Our first line of defense as Christians should be common sense, logic. And number three, we need to remember that Scripture is our miracle. See, Peter had a miracle there in a sense, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He referenced Jesus' miracles. Scripture is a miracle for, for us. Scripture could not have been produced by mere men. The accuracy, the prophecy, the scientific nature of the Bible, it's not just left up to chance. It's a miracle in a sense. We can use scripture to create wonder in people, to allow them to see the beauty and majesty of God. And scripture is a sign. Miracles, wonders, and signs. When we think about the scriptures, they are intended to point us and others toward a relationship with Jesus. Is our presentation of the gospel of scripture pointing others toward Jesus. Peter preaches a great sermon on this day. He was ready. He used logic. He used reasoning. We can do the same thing. We have to point people towards Jesus. That whole sermon, 
using the Old Testament scripture, pointing out what they did to Jesus. Yeah, we're several thousand years removed, but people still need Jesus. As we conclude this lesson this morning, we're about to extend heaven's invitation. We're about to sing a song that's been selected that you can know Jesus, and you can know the saving power of the blood of Jesus, and you come in, can come in contact with it. We think about God's simple plan of salvation usually at this time because we ask you to consider the things that you might need to do to become a child of God. It includes hearing the gospel, hearing the word, believing that word, confessing your sin, or conf confessing sin and repenting of it, and then confessing Jesus as Lord. And then you can be baptized for the remission of your sins so that the Lord can add you to his church. See, it's all about Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and we need to be like him. You can accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. You can call on the name of the Lord, not simply by saying it, but by putting on Christ in baptism. Maybe you're here this morning, you've done that, but you've wandered away. You need to come back to Jesus, to a right relationship with God. We're thankful for the opportunity to encourage you with the song that's been selected, even now as we stand together and as we sing.